0: I have a question in regards to using places like our Disability Resource Center versus creating an an accessible course. If we have specific accessibility exceptions that we have to provide for disability resource students, do we need to think about these accessibility options for everyone? Why should we? create a course that already has accessibility options that aren't specific to those learners.
1: I'll start by pointing out that the notion of an accommodation for a specific student need is not the same thing as making a course accessible and adhering to those universal principles of making things as usable and and successful for all students across all those modalities that we
2: just discussed. You're listening to Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching
3: In this episode of IBD, we are going to take a look at the fundamentals of accessibility for learning. Often is the case that curricula are designed with the average student in mind. As well-meaning as the intent may seem, Any attempt for inclusivity by taking the middle road is belied by the fundamental assumption that a learner, and their needs, can be adequately defined within a set of averages. Modern approaches to accessibility in learning have come to recognize that reducing barriers in education means acknowledging that individual variability is the norm, not the exception. This includes not only those with physical impairments, but also perhaps the exceptionally talented and gifted, or even an adventurous exchange student who may find themselves in a foreign country faced with an equally foreign symbology for learning. Addressing the issue of accessibility in education will most often take one of two paths, the first being a focus on addressing the needs of the individual. For example, the advent of assistive technologies, like screen readers, are designed to help reduce any unnecessary burden posed by technology on those with a visual impairment. On the other hand, there has been an ever-increasing focus on reducing the barriers that may be inherent in the curriculum design itself. This particular episode will focus on the latter by looking at frameworks and guidelines for accessibility in face-to-face, blended, and online courses. One particular framework we will be looking at, Universal Design Principles for Learning, or UDL for short, is inspired by the universal design movement of Ronald L. Mace in Architecture. It calls for the design of products and environments to be usable by all people to the greatest extent possible without the need for adaptation or specialized design. The principles found in the UDL framework, as first defined by David H. Rose in the 90s, are intended to reduce barriers for learning with a flexible curriculum, which allows for multiple pathways to the same goal through multiple means of representation, action, and engagement. After all, what may be a preferred learning style for one individual may be an obstacle for another. In addition to UDL, we will consider other guidelines and frameworks for accessibility, particularly in hybrid and online courses. Welcome to this episode of Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. My name is Aaron Kraft from Arizona State University's College of Nursing and Health Innovation's Academic Innovation Team. Joining me today are...
0: Celia Kachwaitiwa. Jeanette Senecal
3: and Stephen Crawford. Question number one, the setup here. Curriculum, as defined in the UDL literature, has four parts. Instructional goals, methods, materials, and assessments. With these in mind, how can faculty design a course curriculum that allows for different paths to the same goal in terms of multiple means of representation?
1: It's a big charge you're putting before us. It is. (laughs) It is. Low hanging fruit that I think we've touched on in some other episodes. Very simple. Adding alt tags to your images and making sure you have transcripts or captions for your videos and other forms of multimedia.
3: And this helps with screen readers, for example. Absolutely. Mm
0: -hmm. Along that note, adding images to specific vocabulary to help with understanding of what that vocabulary means. Um, Symbology. That also helps.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of times we get so hung up in the abbreviations and and different symbols we use that we don't necessarily define what they are clearly enough. I know in our research writing, we're always told, you know, write the word out and then put the abbreviation and then you can use it afterwards. But in our courses, often we'll do that maybe once in the course if we're lucky or maybe talk about it in a classroom setting. And then we just use the abbreviation from that point on, assuming everybody got it the first time. And that can be dangerous.
3: Right, because if you're reading a paper, you see the words spelled out like universal design principles at the top, and then after that point, you can simply you can simplify it to UDL. Yeah. But in a classroom setting, it's a little bit different. It's not so linear. Maybe a student wasn't there that day, or maybe they just happened to be distracted when you said the original term. Is or this what maybe you're getting you at?
2: moved the materials around yourself as well as another example, and therefore UDL shows up in the first piece of content, and it's actually spelled out in the third. Mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm. What I noticed, and you know. <laughs> I'm thinking of teaching, uh, for example, let's go back to uh, elementary school, right? If I'm teaching math to a classroom, I might not just show them the numbers, but I might also give them uh, little like, like blocks to play with as well that represent the numbers. So you have not just symbology in terms of Arabic numerals, but you also have something tangible that they can uh, manipulate and play with, but the idea is the same. That, that's what this meant to me. How would that play out in a higher education setting? or could it be exactly the same?
0: I know in some of my math courses that I took in higher education, we did have some tangible objects that we could use to help us manipulate and work with the content.
2: I think that's where 3D printing is coming into play so much nowadays. You know, you think about, how we often will have an image especially with anatomy you have an image of an organ why not have something that you could physically hold and go oh that's how big the heart really is most of us don't have access to cadavers so we can't actually physically hold a real heart in our hand but you can hold a, a physical representation of one from a 3d printer also uh, when you look at what's being done with augmented and virtual reality yeah,
3: that's what I was thinking you yeah. can
2: now dive into the cell you know and some of those symbolic things that we think about cell biology, now you can actually swim with them in the cell. And, and, and it, it kind of, you know, with that enlargement, I think helps.
3: It does. Uh, Steven and I actually went to a lens, Microsoft HoloLens demonstration a few days back. And it's pretty cool technology. I was actually able to see a spine a 3d spine from all angles and you could actually walk into it and see the inside of it it was was very neat and the first thing that came to my mind was i remember when my wife was giving birth she had to get the shot what what is that called um epidural epidural I was just, you know, as a uh, you know, as a husband and a father to be, I'm very nervous about sticking needles, you know, in, in someone's spine. But being able to see like where the spinal fluid is to be able to tap into it, I assume that's where the, the needle went. It was it's quite fascinating. So I actually, by I didn't understand it when they were telling it to me, but by seeing it. Through the Hololens demonstration, it made a lot more sense to me, and I, perhaps this is what we're getting at with multiple means of representation here. And,
2: and that's what I—that's I, I, my feeling as well. We talk about a lot of things about audio and video specifically, and it's like, oh, well, you have to make it accessible. But it's—it—it's it, it's not really my mind about making it accessible. It's about providing those alternative means. One of the issues I have with a lot of auditory information being transmitted is you're assuming everyone has the same understanding of the English language as the speaker, and while the the speaker may be a native English uh, speaker. That may not be the case for the listeners. And and in some disciplines, the speaker themselves may be uh, a second language, uh, English as a second language type person. And therefore, being non-native, they may have different pronunciations. You think about accents. Those things can really come into play. And that's where I think with having videos in a course... And having that text is there, but that's the low-hanging fruit. I also think about the graphs, the images. We don't think about the descriptions enough. You know, it's like, all because I can see the graph doesn't mean I understand what's happening. So give me a good description of what's happening.
0: I'll take myself as an example of someone who doesn't do well auditorily. So even things like this with doing the podcast recordings, I can't just listen to the facilitator give the monologue in the beginning, I have to have a printout so I can actually read the words as they say it. And I would say the same thing if I was listening to an audio lecture, I would be one of those students who needs to have the text in front of me. And that's one of those things that you know instructors should think about when they are. doing these video or audio lectures. I'm
3: glad you mentioned that. That's what I was thinking. So does multiple means of representation include transcripts with videos? Like if you have a lecture video, does that mean also including a, a text transcript of it.
0: Ideally, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, it it is something for accessibility, but I think it's also just something for those learners who don't or who need an alternative way of learning the information. Oh, of course.
3: Absolutely. (laughs) I remember when I was an English teacher at a high school, I would dress up, for example, as a Fast food employee. Of course, I went with the uh, McDonald's orange and red, you know, because they have McDonald's uh, in Japan, so they, they recognize the the symbols there, right? And I tried to say as little as possible. I wanted them to act out, you know, and th- this was these were terms they were using terms that they studied in their textbook. But I wanted them to come up to me and try to figure out what they needed to say when they needed to say it through context. Right. So it was a sort of a different avenue towards the same goal. Let's learn these phrases, but instead of just memorizing them or having you repeat them over and over, let's act them out this time. So they've read them and now they're going to experience them you know, as close as possible to a, to
2: a real life situation. But, you know, we're doing these multiple methods of representation for one common purpose, and that is to increase comprehension on our students' part. And so I think that's one area that is another area to, to explore a little bit further. It's more than just providing, you know, alternative means to, to images and audio and video and, and, and having all the text and all that other stuff. It's also about putting that in a in a place that makes sense for a student. One of the suggestions that, I, you know, you see from UDL and, and, and good learning as well is to take new ideas and place them in comfortable known contexts. It's one of the reasons, you know, when you think about nurses, they do a sim lab, they work in a simulation area to practice certain skills, to practice doing certain things so they can get familiar. So when they do it in the real context, you know, it's already been kind of done, it's not as strange. So it kind of reduces some of that tension. And they already have that familiarization. One of the other things we have a job to do as educators is also help point out the different patterns and provide a scaffold of this is what this means and this is how you should be getting there. And, and checklists can help with that and different things. So, you know, when you think about the context of your of what you're teaching, it's about providing a framework to increase comprehension as well, not just about doing things multiple times, multiple ways. All right,
3: well, the idea of checklists I think might fall under multiple means of engagement in terms of sustaining effort and persistence and helping to encourage self regulation. So let's jump to that one. How can faculty design a course curriculum with those four parts mentioned earlier in terms of multiple means of engagement?
1: One of the guidelines speaks to providing support and options for self-regulation. So I'll come back to that word scaffolding. Some of that's developing very articulate expectations that might go in a syllabus or a course introduction and designing them in a way that are clear, concise, and they're consistently applied and referred to throughout the course so that students can begin to build some of those competencies in and around the materials you provide them. Start at the beginning, have clear, salient learning objectives.
0: Mm -hmm. I would go with the guideline of fostering collaboration and community, allowing the students to talk about their learning amongst their peers, as well as even talking with the faculty themselves. This allows them to take in the knowledge or the new learning that they've gained and actually use it, whether it's in context or in conversation.
3: One of the things that strikes me about the multiple means of engagement uh, under the tab of recruiting interests, it says optimize individual choice and autonomy. This sounds an awful lot like adult learning theory to me. Does anybody else get that vibe as well?
1: I agree. Also, sort of a constructivist philosophy of learning where students are encouraged to build their own representations of knowledge, to move from the known to the unknown, and, and link back to that self-regulation, some of the context
2: pieces of learning to be good learners. Yeah, I mean, how often do we have students write a paper because that's the easiest thing for us to do and us being from the mindset of, oh, I can grade that easily enough. Not all students are good writers and that can be okay. You know, some courses are writing intensive, and that's where that's the learning objectives. The goal is to make them better writers, but not all courses are writing courses, but yet they may have a writing component. If a student can convey the exact same information, just as logically using a different means of transmission, maybe it's a video, maybe it's some presentation. If they can present that information in a format other than your standard writing assignment, then why not try to do that? I understand that some of the resistance to that might be, oh, we, the rubric or what's, how how do you measure its apples and oranges? But is it, are, are you grading the content or are you grading the actual delivery mechanism?
3: So here we're springboarding into expression, action and expression. So the third uh, principle, is it a principle or guidelines? So, you know, these
2: terms to me are like- Well, it depends on what, what you're looking at when you talk about the multiple means of action expression, that's a principle, ah. but they have guidelines within them. Ah,
3: thank you. Thank you. Excellent. So uh, let's move to that principle then, action and expression. Stephen's mentioning uh, allowing for multiple means of expression to demonstrate mastery of a competency or of a, of a learning goal in the class.
2: Yeah. And I think that's what Jeanette was saying about the learning goal. If you don't have a good, strong, well-defined learning goal and it's not communicated to the learners, you can't get everybody to work together then. You know, I think often we have our course objectives in our courses. We may even have our module objectives on what we want to do this week. But how well do we communicate that to our students and get them on board. This is what we're going to do this week, and this is why we're doing it.
3: So these two are really tied, action, expression, and engagement. If the students understand what they're doing, if they see how it's relevant to themselves, again, tapping into adult learning theory a little bit there, then they might be more motivated to engage in the course. But part of that motivation is going to to be having the various avenues for action and expression. Fair to say?
2: Yeah.
0: I think this guideline lends itself well to active learning strategies because it does encompass a lot of those principles that fall under it with physical action and expression and communication. And then even going back over to the engagement piece, of course.
3: The idea being that if you're just typing a paper, that's just one avenue to express uh, the competency, right? So we need to have multiple avenues. And it's not a very active approach. Right. So we're always advocating on this podcast, uh, active learning, student-centered learning approaches. So what other methods could faculty use then if they want to break away from the essay, but they don't know how?
1: One of these guidelines speaks to building fluencies with graduated levels of support for practice and performance. And when I think about that, I think about see one, do one, and you are very literal, very concrete, maybe showing every individual step within a process. And then the next one, you're encouraging them to branch out and try on their own a little bit more, building upon, again, the competencies that they're developing gradually over time as a way to help, again, self-regulation, get them motivated and get them feeling comfortable taking on more responsibility in different ways.
0: Going back to your uh, question about what do we do if we want to break away from some of these essay writing uh, types of assessments, I actually had this conversation yesterday with a faculty member who was looking to incorporate portfolios in their course to break away from those essay written typed assessments, and as well as uh, discussion boards. So portfolios, there's one right there. Looking at the way that portfolios could Support the ability to provide an opportunity for the students to reflect, but also put in some, a little bit of, you know, writing pieces in there. But more for the reflection piece, which is all about the engagement and self regulation.
3: It reminds me of my graduate program where it was online. I took a graduate program online, and we were told I, it was all project based, and they would say, I don't care what you do, make it multimedia, do whatever you're capable of demonstrate the competencies and make it multimedia. And we could go as deep into that as, as we wanted to. So of course, some students would put together a PowerPoint presentation with narration. Yeah, technically, that's, it's multimedia, right? You have images and words slash text. Yeah, that works. I would use, you know, I get a little fancy with my, my Mac, but I'm, I'm techie. So, you know, I enjoyed it, but I, w- I would create maybe little animations and flash or I, w- I would dive a little bit deeper, but the grading wasn't weighted. I didn't get graded for how spectacularly, uh, you know, fancy my presentation was. I got graded on whether or not I could convey the uh, ma- mastery of the, of the learning objectives.
2: I mean, again, it should be about the content that aligns with the learning objectives that you want the students to be able to demonstrate knowledge of, mastery of. You think about a knowledge test, they could take a multiple choice test, get it right, get it wrong, simple as that. Or they could present a paper where they describe things or they could create an infographic or they could create, you know, again, a multimedia presentation. And I think providing those multiple opportunities, again, it's not about the delivery. It's about, did you hit the goals of the assignment? Did you demonstrate the knowledge that you were required to have? If it's an application level type of objective, then, you know, you're going to have to do something and how you describe what you did could be take your phone out and record a video, just, you know, create a poster summarizing things. It just, there's lots of different opportunities there, but we should be focusing more on, the actual learning objectives and not the content delivery. And I think sometimes we get so tied up with the content delivery, the paper has to be at least 800 words, double-spaced, this, that, and the other. And if you're teaching APA, yeah, following APA would be a very important guideline to to measure. But if you're not teaching APA in the course and it's not one of your learning objectives, then why are you putting so much of that on the paper? Why is that a major grading piece?
3: And to flip that, I knew an instructor who... Chose one delivery method. It was uh, Vine. Do you guys remember vines? Mm -hmm. All six Mm -hmm. seconds of it. I don't. Yes, it's six (laughs) second videos, very brief. I don't think vines exist anymore. No, it's gone. It's gone. That was a short lived fad. (laughs) But when it was around, I I knew an instructor who had her students create their final project. It had to be presented as a Vine, in that format. But within that context, they could do whatever they wanted as long as it fit the criteria, right? So it actually gave them a lot of freedom. So you can still choose a single platform. It doesn't have to be wide open, per se, but then within that platform allow for variability.
2: I will say think it through uh, as an instructor, because I know one person who did choose to do multiple types of, of presentations for the submission. And the idea was originally, oh, well, they have to submit 10 slides to me. So instead of me reviewing 10 slides, maybe I'll have them do a presentation. And they gave the choice, students could either submit 10 slides with, with the narration written out, or they could record a video of the presentation. They didn't put a time limit on it, and so they discovered that the students were recording like 30 minute plus presentations. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, oh, that didn't work well. Um, but think, but that's something to consider. Think, you know, you know, it sounds like a great idea to go do. And I, I encourage it, but I also encourage thinking it through of making sure that there are appropriate limits to so that's a little bit more equal.
3: Is this something that's easier to do? I'm talking about um allowing for multiple means of expression through uh, or multiple means of uh, action and expression. Is this something that's easier to do in an online course or a hybrid course rather than face-to-face? Or am I just biased since my background is in I online? I know it's biased. Yeah, well, go ahead. <laughs> why, why is that? <laughs> I'm is gonna, it easier to allow for multiple means of action and expression in an online course because you have so many uh, fancy tech formats you can you can play with and, and tools?
2: I, I want to agree oh. with Celia that, that you're being biased. Um, yeah, and the, ahead, and the reason you. for it is we had that creativity in the face-to-face classroom long before online tools were created. You know, you think about some presentations that students have done. You could do a skit, you could do music, you could do a serious presentation. There's lots of different presentation styles you could do. Yes, they're all presentation styles, but when you get to online, a lot of times it's all multimedia for the most part It's the exact same thing. And now you consider how, you know, even our basic, most basic face-to-face courses have a very strong tool integration into that course. So yeah, you could do it all, you could do those pieces online as well as face-to-face, which I think provides more opportunities because if you have students who are identified as having anxiety issues and they don't do well standing in front of others, and you're not a speech 101 course where you have to stand and deliver, or maybe you are, you can now stand and deliver to your iPhone camera and now posted online just as well as standing in front of a room of people. If the goal, learning objective is to stand in front of a room of people, then that's a different story. But the point is, is that you can now integrate those technologies just as well into the face-to-face classroom and provide all these different opportunities for people. So you think there's a parity between the two modalities and that? Oh, I think case. there's a lot of opportunities. Yeah. And parity.
1: Maximum flexibility.
2: Wow, Jeanette's really paying attention here. <laughs> That's what we're talking You're about. You're
0: only limited by your creativity.
2: Flexible
0: yes. curriculum. I'm thinking about when you talked about the tangible objects and touching and manipulating things to help you with the math. Well, you can't really do that online unless you tell your learners, okay, get some blocks out and move them around, and I'll just, you know, hope that you actually did this.
3: Fingers crossed. Yeah. But
0: you also have interactive software that can help you build things to allow for that movement of pieces. So that kind of replaces places that whole touching tangible objects and moves it into a, okay, now I'm dragging and dropping objects right. online.
3: Right. So. Good point. Very good point. Well, since we're talking about online, I'd like to shift gears slightly at, to our online and hybrid folks that may be listening. So in addition to UDL, what else might faculty pay attention to in order to enable accessibility?
1: As a starting point, I would definitely recommend that you check out whatever compatibilities, accessibility statements, parameters are already embedded in the software tools, learning management systems, whatever you're already using, go check out what is already available and what's already been done for you in a sense.
3: And to take that further, if you're using certain tools, maybe you want to link to that tool's webpage uh, or help documentation on how to use it. And if you have trouble, contact so and so. Is that
1: that's part two after the scavenger hunt? Yes,
0: absolutely. Okay. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I have a question in regards to using places like our disability resource center versus creating an an accessible course.
3: I ask the questions here.
0: Not anymore, buddy. (laughs) Yes. Why is it that if we have specific accessibility exceptions that we have to provide for disability resource students, do we need to think about these accessibility options for everyone or why, why should we create a course that already has accessibility options that aren't specific to those learners?
3: That is a solid question. Does anybody have a solid answer for that?
1: I'll start by pointing out that the notion of an accommodation for a specific student need is not the same thing as making a course accessible and adhering to those universal principles of making things as usable and and successful for all students across all those modalities that we just discussed.
2: I mean, going back to the idea of providing captions in a video, while... We think about it as, oh, this is important for um, a student who is hard of hearing or deaf, that this is, for them, this is the only way they'll get the information. And so, therefore, it has to be accurate. That's a good conversation to have, but also consider, again, our ESL students. If they don't understand words we're saying, key words, then they're going to have a misinterpretation of what... Is being taught, and therefore, if they can look at the captions and they're accurate, they can then check their learning and go, "Oh, I misheard that." When they said fourth, I thought they said fifth. You know, and that, you know, and that could be a huge difference. Or take chemical terms or any other technical term; they're always being mispronounced.
3: That's an interesting point. I had a Japanese friend back in college who he heard the instructions: "The first one to five wins." and he couldn't under his english was good but that phrase was tricky for him because he had first and then five but it, it was
2: well and that's and, it and, was a little tricky for him and, to and that's another great point i'm going to take a little bit further is i think we use a lot of colloquialisms that we know what they mean but international students or students not from this part of the country may have never heard of like oh, a football term you know you know i'm just going to punt this all right we know that that means that okay in football, it's fourth down. I punt the ball to the other team. I'm just going to kick it down the field and let someone else deal with it. Essentially, so well, I'm you not... you know that okay, that's what I that know, means. I'm no sports guy,
1: <laughs> but but that's just it.
2: You know, that's a lot of people. A lot of men, especially, will use that term because it's a football and they get it. But when you say I'm just going to punt this, I'm just going to punt this. What does that really mean? Does it mean I don't? You know, some people don't understand. Are you actually going to kick? What does so then, that mean? What do
3: you say
1: instead of punt?
2: I don't know. That's a good question. I'll I'll have to get back to you. (laughs) All right. all right. You
1: can punt that one back to me later. (laughs) I I will tell you that I watch all TV with captions on, and it's not a hearing issue, but I just sometimes have trouble following rapid dialogue. I get a lot more understanding out of entertainment if I have captions available. Rant
3: card. Why do flat screen TVs have the worst speakers? They're placed on the back or on the bottom. They face, they go right, the, the audio goes right to the floor or to my wall. I can't hear anything. It's muffled.
0: Good question. Therefore, the soundbar exists. The
2: soundbar enables accessibility. It's a vast conspiracy to buy new stuff. Yes. But (laughs) But that's a good point. You know, you think about, you know, you were talking about your scenario. You think about students listening on earbuds on a crowded train. You can't always hear because somebody else is making a lot of noise. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of people use captions not because they need to, but because they prefer to, and it a, creates a better experience. And we're seeing research where students are doing that with YouTube more and more. They're turning on the captions, and th- that's just what they're doing. So yeah, I think that's one thing. And again, it's not about creating accommodation, it's about creating a better learning experience.
0: I'd also like to point out that we've talked about students with disabilities, we've talked about students who are learning a new language, but then you also have that group of students who have had gifted resources uh, throughout their schooling. And they come into higher education and they get added into an honors program. They also have their own specific resources that they are provided because they are a different type of learner themselves along with the others.
2: So just to to point
3: that out. All encompassing, absolutely. Yes. Yes.
2: You know, some other things that faculty can do, I think, to improve the usability of their courses is is to consider the content they're adding to their course. So, for example, PDFs. Fortunately, the library today, most of their PDFs are created from source material. And why that's important is because when I got started, they were scanned in on a scanner. And so therefore, it was essentially a photograph of the page, and that's not readable by a screen reader. Some students like having that text-readable document because they will just rather have the computer read off the the file to them, and so they can get it audio read to them automatically. They're they're hearing students. They can see it. They just choose, I want to hear the document. I don't want to look at it. I don't want to read it. And, and and maybe that's because that's how they get their reading done while driving. I mean, I don't think I'd read a journal article or a textbook chapter while driving, but listening to one's a little different. Um, now, if you want to argue about how well they hear it, that's a different story and how well I comprehend it. But yeah, I, and when we create PDFs, it's better to go in Word and do file save as PDF than print as PDF, because when you print it... Often you're almost getting a near image of it as opposed to an actual textual thing. And the way to tell if you've got something that's, that, that's usable or accessible is to try to highlight text in the document. If you can't do it, it's not accessible. It's an image. It's, it's an image effectively. One of the other things I like to tell folks is learn to use Microsoft Word, especially the headings. I have seen so many doctoral students who have spent hours upon hours building their table of contents by hand. I did it in five seconds, and the reason why it took me five seconds is because I used head the headings feature built into Microsoft Word. If you use that in your syllabus, if you use that in all your documents, whether you're building a table of contents or not, those headings get tagged in a special way that makes them more usable, and when you say them as a PDF, you'll see bookmarks down the side so a student can jump to that section of the document just like that.
1: You gave me a perfect segue. Thank you. You got it. So a couple of years ago, I sat in on a webinar, and basically the context was tips for creating accessible course content. And I thought, oh, I already know some of this basic stuff, right? I don't really need this, but I'm gonna, you know, check it out. And what you're referring to, tags and style and Word, it's called semantic structure. And it's, it's useful for that reason, building table of contents. But also, if you are using screen readers, it really helps provide orientation to the different segments of the material, which is really important. But another important thing that I learned that I had never known before is that almost all of those productivity softwares have built-in accessibility checkers. They will literally run a little utility in a report and highlight areas that may be problematic for other screen reader type of software, and I would have never thought to run an Excel spreadsheet through an accessibility checker before. So even some versions of Adobe Reader now have built-in functions, you know, free software that you can go through and check your own materials for items that may need to be resolved. Very good insight. Thank you, Jeanette.
2: And another one I want to pick on with Word is a lot of times we'll highlight the top row and make it bold because that's the first row. That's the, the header row, but we don't tell Word it's the header row. So if you actually go into the table settings and say, repeat this... On pages, what will happen is, is that if your table breaks up onto two pages by doing that little thing, that the that will automatically be repeated. The header uh, row will be repeated on the second page. And if it spills to a third page, it'll be repeated automatically. And you don't have to physically move it every single time. Your life gets easier. It's easier for your students or your whoever's viewing your content to actually see it and understand it and read it. Just so much simpler.
3: Reducing an undue burden posed by technology. Exactly. So instead of playing a rank card. I'll simply suggest that also course builders, course designers, curriculum designers, faculty pay attention to course navigation. Try to maintain a, an internal consistency among the various parts. I would suggest maybe avoiding having a folder within a folder within a folder in your course. But if you really want to dive into it, talk to your local friendly instructional designer. I'm sure they will be glad to help you out to make sure that your course is easily navigable.
2: Yeah. Some instructional designers have had training in user interfaces, so they understand what users will and will not do. And, you know, the idea that you can't have content three, four, five folders deep is a myth. That's, there's, there's research showing, yeah, you don't have to have everything on your front page, so don't clutter everything on the front page. Just go, this is where your content is, now dive in. This is where week one is, now dive in. After that, you probably want not go too much deeper than that, but the idea is keep it as uncluttered as possible and everything that needs to be together, together.
3: Well, some of the snags I notice include the folder issue, but it can be tastefully done. Yes combine like elements if you have several web links instead of creating a separate item for each one perhaps combine them into one single item if you're a blackboard user that might make more sense to you so just a suggestion there
2: i mean unless you want them to read them in different after certain things what you're suggesting is is you know just look at these web links and here's why tell them why they're doing it too
1: and one more related bonus tip is make sure you use descriptive hyperlinks when you're creating items, links, folders. Don't just say, click here. What does click here mean? If you're not looking at the page, there's no context for that. That, that feels like it's advice. the
2: late 90s having to say that still. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> I feel so 20 years ago. Well, we're trying to be
3: inclusive of everybody, so. All right. Well, as always, we hope that you enjoyed this episode of IBD. If you would like to learn more about accessibility, be sure to start with udlguidelines.cast.org. That is udlguidelines one word.cast.org. Check out qualitymatters.org and of course, your institution's disability resource center if you have one. I would like to thank our panelists today, Celia Kuchwaitiwa, Jeanette Senecal, Stephen Crawford, and a special
2: thanks to our producer,
3: our very own universal design principal, Ricardo
2: Leon. You can reach us on Twitter at IBD underscore podcast. That is IBD, as in instruction by design, underscore podcast. Or you can email us at instructionbydesign at ASU.EDU. To find previous episodes, please visit our website at linksasuedu podcast. This podcast was produced by Arizona State University's College of Nursing and Health Innovation.
3: He walks in the bar and says, "What's your Wi-Fi password?" And the bartender says, "You have to buy a drink first." I read this one. Yeah, you heard this one. So he buys a drink. Says, "Okay, now can you tell me the, the Wi-Fi password?" He says, "You have, you have to, to buy a drink, a drink first, first. All one word." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like that one. You know, one.
1: somewhere someplace probably did something I like, like that, one. that. Yeah. It's become lore.
3: And the last one, a person who makes clock hands literally makes second hand pieces. Oh, I forgot. Never mind.
2: <laughs> and this is the other part of it, is Aaron tells us a joke and then halfway through realizes he does another joke. <laughs> well, that doesn't happen too often now.
1: But you got through did and you <laughs> already? <halfway laughs> <on laughs>
2: Happened last, really? Uh, Just now. Just now. Um, You had one about four jokes ago, where you said, "Oh, I couldn't remember the third part."
3: Yeah, no, it's like (laughs) you know, I saw and that's today. You know, I heard
1: sheep. You know what I something something.
2: Anyways, and that's just while I was in the
1: room.